Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, Focus Search Partners Managing Director, Ann Zeichner. Being direct, being authentic, mm. with kindness, mm. is how I would describe my style. Zeichner finds listening to employees is a key leadership tool. When people feel heard, regardless of how senior or not, how what their level of contribution is or not, they'll often perform at a level above what anyone thinks thinks that or they even think they can perform. And the use of humor is a secret weapon to successful leadership. Just as an example with one team that was very wary of me, we ended up having a joking contest at a bar one night and after that there isn't anything they wouldn't have done. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Welcome Anne again to uh, Cracking the Code. It's a uh podcast, as you know, that uh, is more focused on uh, leaders, uh, pioneers, innovators, entrepreneurs, investors, and uh, technologists all sharing their hard-first philosophies and what success they were able to create for themselves and the world around them. And I know you're one of the few people I know that has been very successful in many areas of your career over the decades. So I welcome you to the show, and uh, it's a beautiful day here again in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. I always meet on good days. The last time we did, we also met on a good day. So thank you for joining us. Well, I'm honored to be invited. Thank you so much, Sadir, and I always enjoy speaking with you. I learn something every time, and it's just plain fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Take us back a little bit to your early childhood and how you really you know, traverse that journey that brought you into various forms of leadership early on into a very successful career over the decades? Well, I uh, grew up all over the place. We, My family moved, and I like to say I've been to 13 schools before I graduated from high school. And I was always the new kid on the block. And so Uh, I think I could have retreated, uh, but I learned quickly to find uh, ways to to make my way and and to have friends as we moved. And really it was not just in the United States, a lot on the East Coast, but also over to England uh, and back. And so my ideas, some of my ideas, I think, were formed during that that early process. And uh, Mm -hmm. my parents were also... They were iconoclastic in a a way. Um, They were uh, encouraged. There were three of us. I'm the middle child. And they encouraged us to be who we are and taught us that there was nothing we couldn't do. Um, And so I, I never felt boundaries growing up I felt like I could try lots of different things and they were very supportive my Mm. mother was creative my father was analytical and so I had both of those influences and support I'm very fortunate to have had the parents I had and the family that I had Mm. so obviously clearly one or two of those key tenants you followed in very very uh, strongly and started creating um, 
a thought process to create a successful career. How did that evolve? It was sort of an accident. I hear about people's careers and who've been very thoughtful and they've known what they've wanted to do from the time they were born. Uh, but I, I thought I wanted to be a pre-med student and quickly found out that that isn't where my talents were <laughs> in college. And I became an English major and actually then focused on rhetoric and linguistics. And I loved to write and, and learned that storytelling was some something I could do well. And then once I learned how to write, that that was probably going to be a way for me to leverage my early skills. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I graduated from college, I ended up in a nascent um, editorial position for a nascent company that was bought by McGraw-Hill. Mm-hmm. It was my first experience at a startup and also writing um, that that uh, organization wrote about technology. And in order to for me to edit the information, I had to teach myself or learn about some of the technologies that aren't around now, but PBX Systems was one that I... Uh, that I learned a lot about and word processors if anybody knows what those are but I enjoyed I learned I enjoyed that I learned that I enjoyed learning about technology so that must have been very interesting those were very uh, very early uh, times for technology innovation like you said very few people now would know what a PBX is mm-hmm. how did that go and then of course you know you were a woman and uh, very few women back then and in the field of technology, so... Well, early on, in the editorial job, I made so little money that I actually qualified for food stamps. <laughs> and I kept hearing these salespeople on the other side of the wall, and it felt like what they were doing is going out to eat big meals, and they all drove big cars, and I thought, gosh, maybe I want to do that. Uh, that didn't happen in the company where I was, but I got a, an, an opportunity to join another startup company that was pioneering a lot of the technologies, some of which has morphed, but that was used in big networks. Mm -hmm. And I went in as a tech writer, went into marketing, and again, I still had these memories of the salespeople and the cars and the food, and I'd go to the trade shows, and once the show was set up, I technically could leave the booth, but I would stay and listen to the salespeople. And I would emulate them. And then I began, I begged and begged to get a position in sales. And eventually they got tired of hearing me and gave me an opportunity in New York, Mm. uh, uh, selling big networking equipment. And everybody thought it was a joke in the company that this sort of young woman was, that they thought it was hysterical. And if you know New York, at that time they gave me north of 42nd Street and there's pretty much no business there. Right. But I somehow managed to close a couple of big deals with Associated Press and some other accounts, and that was the beginning of my career. And, uh, you know, it was interesting in tech at that time. There were, I think, in the whole city of New York, three women selling this particular type of technology, and I knew the other two, when, uh, one of whom today is one of my best friends. Um, but... Uh, it wasn't easy, but as long as you could get your foot in the door, after the first five minutes, people forgot that you were a woman and you were either good at what you were doing or you weren't. What was one of the motivational insights that you you picked up early on in saying, look, I'm, yeah, I'm fine as a tech writer, but I really, you know, I'm curious, uh, I really want to know more, and I want to do something 
bigger than just tech writing? If I'm honest, money. <laughs> um, because I didn't see a path to earning the kind of money I wanted to earn to be independent and make my own decisions about my life and to mm -hmm. travel the way I had traveled. And I could have gotten small incremental raises at that point, but I had big dreams. Mm -hmm. And I quickly found that at that point in sales, if you performed, you, it didn't matter whether you were a woman or not. They had to pay the commission. And mm -hmm. so quickly in my career, I began to look at, to try to judge which technology was going to sell and, and who would buy it. And that's how my sales career took off because I was able to figure that out. And in fact, in some companies, morph the technology by providing feedback to the people in engineering and marketing about what the market needed. And especially as I began to work on Wall Street, they would modify the equipment, and I made some really large sales. So it's it's fascinating to hear you talk. And of course, now if you fast forward to your uh, life in the last uh, 25 plus years, you've had a incredibly illustrious and successful career. Give us a few highlights of those. I mean, you've done some unique things as an investor, as a as a, as an entrepreneur, as a startup CEO. You've you've really, I mean, far from tech writing, so, right? Right. <laughs> well, that sales career I worked my way up into senior sales leadership roles and then sales and marketing roles in a variety of different companies and with different technologies. Um, I began in the networking arena mm -hmm. as networking mm -hmm. was in its heyday mm -hmm. and um, and then moved over to telecom services in the last role. In, in between, I actually ran a company that uh, I, I had been running sales and the CEO left and they asked if I would like to be CEO. That was a, um, a software play, an infrastructure software play, and that was very challenging because the company was a troubled company and was also software, and I'd always sold a physical good, like this right. hardware. Um, but then my, the, the last operating job I had was in a network service provider and pioneering DSL company as uh, the first person in sales and marketing, and... I would um, go home in the morning and yell it in my head at the marketing people because there were no slides as I went out to sell. And then at night when I went home and created the slides, yell at those darn salespeople who needed marketing slides. So um, <laughs> that company grew to be very large. Uh, and in the heyday right before the dot, dot com, it worked. It's, it was large in the dot com uh, bubble and then there suffered from the dot-com bust but it was a tremendous experience very talented people in the who's who of silicon valley funded it um so that was quite interesting so through that process you clearly um you know got thrust into roles including board positions and uh dealing with high profile investors and at the same time becoming an investor yourself all those were probably uh, first-time learning opportunities. Can you share one or two things that you would look back and say, these are things that really aided me to move to the next level? I would say I was fearless. Again, I want to go back to my parents who said that, you know, you could do anything really. Um, and entering into those roles sometimes and with those people, uh, those people being investors, 
high-profile customers. They're just people. And uh, if we can sit down and agree on what the goals are and what needs to happen, and I can figure out how to deliver that for people um, and have some fun along the way, um, I, I always had that attitude as I approached something new. And I'm pretty methodical um, and pretty flexible. And so I've found that you just kind of have to jump in with both feet sometimes and know that you'll always figure it out one way or the other. You're not always going to be successful, mm-hmm. but you may well be. That's what I would say to myself. And I think that was the, my my approach all through my career. That's very uh, nice to hear, actually. And, uh, of course, we are living in very interesting times. And uh, through this process of evolution that you've had in your career, you've You've been also a great leader, and I'm, I want to switch now to asking you a few thoughts on uh, what you think, uh, how you've sort of developed your uh, your style as a leader. What are some of the things that you believe leadership entails, and um, what are some of the insights that you gleaned and practiced that you would say uh, you would want to share with, with our audience? I would say... Probably the most important thing for me has been figuring out how to connect to people on an individual basis and find out what makes them tick. And then to find a way to connect that back to the goal, the overall goal that we're trying to achieve. Um, And everybody can do something well or some things well and other things not as well. And if along the way... I can help somebody figure out what he or she does well and give them positive feedback for their performance. Mm -hmm. They have often exceeded what they ever thought they could do. Um, So I think it's setting an example also of working hard and being able to go back and forth between being in the trenches with the people who are doing the work but being at the helm when you need to make tough decisions Mm -hmm. and for people knowing that you're going to be by their side but you're going to be out in front when you need to be. Very um, interesting to hear because, you know, uh, we're we're living in very interesting times right now. As you know, there's always, uh, there's always probably, which I'd like to hear your thoughts on, being a focus on... uh, women hitting glass ceiling kind of, uh, you know, uh, issues when it comes to uh, developing their career, especially in the tech world. And uh, that has now evolved into something more global and more bigger with the Me Too movement and all the issues that are going on. What are some of the insights that you had uh, all the way from those early days to now that, you know, you would share with... um, aspiring uh, young millennial women who are uh, clearly could be on the same career path as you and and uh, and do just as well or better well it's not always easy and there are setbacks and you can't or i there were times when it was really difficult for me to be the only woman in the room and not be heard mm-hmm. so i think it's important to figure out for if you're a woman, what makes you feel confident enough to speak up and be heard? Mm-hmm. And in my case, it it was having facts to back up what I wanted to say, or mm-hmm. having, if I had a strong point of view, being able to articulate that 
from my heart or from my brain um, and to feel really solid about about speaking up. Um, and if you have to yell over men, do it. Don't mm-hmm. be quiet. And don't worry. I mean, one of the things I think I went out of my way to do and maybe had to do more so that many years ago when there weren't very many women in, in this part of technology was to not threaten men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I don't think you get anywhere by threatening anybody. And so if there's a way to partner with somebody on something that you want to get done or believe in, that's a really important thing. The other thing that helped me tremendously is I developed a mentor network of phenomenal men. And Mm -hmm. I can't thank them enough because they believed in me. Mm -hmm. And they helped me throughout my career, and they helped me not just with recommendations for jobs, but, you know, I had a career coach, and they were all, or many of them, were provided what's called 360 feedback, mm-hmm. and it helped shape me. Um, they uh, they were honest with me, and they gave very direct feedback, mm-hmm. and so I would say it's just absolutely critical to get some mentors and now there are more women in leadership roles so some can be women but also men and to build bridges with everybody Mm -hmm. the other thing i would like to say is that forget the women and men thing for a minute Mm -hmm. there's a sort of a um, jocular behavior mode that that men can get into that can be just as damaging for men who are not jocks as it is for women And so developing a more universal style where I could probably get along with anybody because I had moved all over the place and it came naturally to me. But if it doesn't come naturally to somebody today, whether you're a man or a woman, figuring out what makes each person tick and making them feel valued just for their personality, the way they show up. You'll get, uh, uh, I think, as a leader, you'll be able to have a very diverse workforce, and that's the key to, uh, I think, unusual success. It's a fantastic insight, by the way, and I would agree with you. And I think sometimes men, men tend to be fairly competitive, especially as you move up the ranks. You probably experienced that in your career. I have, too. And um, sometimes thinking about it more from saying, it's not about me as a woman being more competitive than the guy next to me, but how can I sort of create that universal capability so it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. We're still trying to achieve similar career opportunities and and do the right thing, right? Yes, and and I do think that the world right now is ready for some of that, and mm-hmm. the if I were just starting my career today as a, a millennial woman, I would, I can't say enough about building my network, both of mentors, but also peers. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I wouldn't make them all women. I would make them women and men. And there are plenty of sympathetic men or men who want to be sympathetic and don't know how to be right now. And, um, and I would enlist their support. You spent uh, several decades in Silicon Valley. And uh, share a little bit about how, you know, the Valley is very unique compared to many other places in terms of what is, what what goes on. And uh, you've had tremendous success, probably some failures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Valley rewards failure and success probably equally. <laughs> 
and uh, maybe you know for uh, for our audience, you could share a little bit of your insights and your learnings on what that's meant because so much has changed even in the last thirty years, even mm. in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Well, working in Silicon Valley isn't for the faint of heart, <laughs> um, but it's a lot of fun. And um, I hate to keep harping on this, but part of what's really important is the networking aspect of what what you do. And it's it, it can be a full-time job if you make it mm-hmm. a full-time job. So building a network was something I learned early on uh, that I had to do. And when I, there are nights when you're tired and you've been working, you know, 16-hour days at a startup, but you go to a meetup or you go to an event, um, That that's something that's really important. I think the Valley, some things about it have changed over the years and some haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been the hub for innovation. And what's, what's here that is unique are, are the ecosystems that have been built around starting companies. What's come with that, unfortunately, is a bit of arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think through the years that maybe has increased a little bit, and that that on the wrong day can be hard to tolerate. So I think you, one has to walk in here knowing what your strength is and also be aware of timing and what phase the, the valley is in, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've always had ups and downs as far as the economy goes, um, but being being aware of what's going on, for example, in venture capital, in angel investing, so keeping abreast of how investors work um, and where the where the seat of power is, mm-hmm. um, you got to morph and change over time because you let's say somebody is really valuable in one one particular part of the business as investors and the types of investors change. You have to be able to network with all of the investors and see where where money is coming from and know what position of strength you're in or not at any particular time in your career. And so it's that intersection of time and what you have to offer and being aware of what's happening in the valley and then leveraging that in the moment. That's a very, very uh, thoughtful insight. And how would you say, you know, I mean, um, clearly leadership is very, it evolves too. And the millennial generation is is, uh, is, is a different focus in terms of their leadership. And uh, we are all investing in, into that generation. What are your thoughts around how uh, and what upcoming millennial leaders should do when it comes to honing in and developing their leadership skills? whether they're living in Silicon Valley or around the world? Back in the day, there was a <laughs> lot of management training that isn't happening now. It, it, it It's happening in a lesser d- degree in larger companies and in a lot of startups it just doesn't happen. That's so true. And also the workforce is transient. There's less. Uh, there are less permanent employees, um, the gig workforce and all of that. So I think the most important thing is that each millennial has to own his or her own management development. Don't wait for someone else to give it to you from a company or to approach you. Mm-hmm. I think being a, a lifelong learner um, is good for anybody, but in particular for a millennial, whether it's a hard skill um, like 
uh, knowing SEO or something like that, or whether it is a leadership skill, they're equally as important. And there are plenty of ways to do that, whether you, um, not only through a mentor network, but there are really important classes that you can take. Mm -hmm. Online, you can go to, if you're working, um, there are professional development classes, and there are also organizations. For example, for young uh, millennials in Silicon Valley, there's an organization called Watermark that mm-hmm. is for women. And they have um, very effective classes on if you want to serve on a board, how, what do you need to know? What do you need to know about governance? How do mm-hmm. you become a valuable board leader? How do you get to the next level in your career? So mm-hmm. I would say own it and go after it and figure out how to grow on your own. Don't wait for someone else to grow you. That's fantastic, you know. Clearly, you've had a defined leadership style in all your roles. If you had to share some of those insights, what would those be? What are one of those, one or two of those unique things you practice as a leader, no matter what your role is, every day? The night before the next day, I look at the three things I really need to accomplish that day, and that's sort of tactical and near term. I do that on Sunday for the week, mm-hmm. and I try to do that in December for the for the year ahead uh, and I and I think having a plan whether it changes or not has been really helpful for me and if the day gets crazy I still want to accomplish those three things mm-hmm. or if I look back in the year I want to see what I've done and I want to see if I've if I need to change my goals or if they've made sense I think behaviorally what's really important to me is along with those goals making sure that the that the team who is accomplishing the goals with me has what they need to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I don't view myself as a command and control leader. Rather, it's what can, how can I help you achieve the goal? Do you know how to achieve it? Do you need to talk about it? Are you somebody who's off doing it and I, I don't need to help you? Are you someone I need to monitor because you say you're going to do it and mm-hmm. then you don't? So I think it's a matter of figuring out what each person needs and figuring out how to make that person successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the collective whole succeeds. Again, some, some great insights for, for new leaders who are looking, looking to uh, you know, practice skills that are going to be important to, uh, to becoming a successful leader. A uh, couple of other things, and you know, we'll, uh, we'll sort of wind down in a little bit, but uh, you're a very warm person. I've had the privilege of uh, experiencing that warmth, even at times when I've not been, uh, uh, you know, uh, totally sure of myself. Uh, when you meet people, what what do you like to instill instill and leave them with? Uh, is there something that comes to your mind? Is that something you deliberately do? Is that something you naturally do? Well, I think every person has at least one gift and probably many gifts. And it's my privilege to figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. So if somebody remembers, and this is, I think it was Maya Angelou who said this, but if you, you don't have to remember what we talked about, but it's how, how I made you feel or how we mm-hmm. felt in the conversation. I want it to be an authentic conversation. I want to hear your truth. I don't want you to feel like you, I mean, we're all 
at one time or another in various roles where we can't speak a complete truth. But if there's an authentic moment or two where I can get to what makes you tick mm -hmm. and you feel you can feel good about who you are with me, uh, that's my goal. And that has served me really well because it doesn't matter with whom I'm interacting. That's a much richer experience for me. And life is short. And so if I can, it's selfish on my part, if I can have that rich experience and someone else also has a good experience, then when we walk away from one another, whether we are going to, you know, have more business interactions or a friendship or whatever happens, the time was well spent. My thinking on this whole issue has evolved over, over the decades and having had the privilege of being around many very successful people, including yourself. I've seen uh, various um, heart-first, uh, you know, uh, value systems be at the core of when people like you are talking. And I think authenticity is one I, I feel in the world that we live in today, especially with so much of social media around us, that uh, we sometimes tend to forget that when you're genuinely authentic, you always get that reciprocation back because people feel comfortable in what you're saying. The downside of it and the risk that you have to watch is when you are in a leadership role and you have to deliver goals, as much empathy as you can have for somebody who's involved in delivering a deliverable with you when they're not delivering yeah. and you have to be able to give them clear feedback and guidance and if it's not working you have to be able to tell them that as well and so but there's you can tell the truth with kindness there's yeah. no need to be um there are times people are unnecessarily nasty or mean or curt and sometimes they're in a hurry and sometimes they just don't care and mm -hmm. I, I don't i don't see the need for that it's unnecessary you spend a lot of time in the world of technology. We'll just briefly touch on that. And uh, you've seen a lot in technology and a lot evolve. Uh, what are some of the things as you look at the next set of technologies coming at us? You know, AI has been around for a long time, and and yet it's now one of the the top talked about topics in Silicon Valley. And there's there's quite a few of them. A lot of companies getting focused on robotic process automation and many other things that are out there. What's your lens looking like You know, when you look at technology? Well, there's Moore's Law, right? And I think we've been evolving at a ridiculously fast rate on one hand. On the other hand, I think we need to absorb some of... There's market timing, and I think as a society, we're, we're needing to look at what AI is going to do and ro what robotics are really going to do. And I think a lot of people don't realize, as you said, that we've had AI for a long time. And so now it's really about AI applications and what we're going to, how we're going to apply AI. And some of that will be driven solely around where people can make money. But I also think there are certain applications that are good for society. Um, in, in the profession I'm now in, in executive search, we're already using a lot of AI. We can look at whether we're looking at behavioral traits mm -hmm. or past history and fit for a particular position. Mm -hmm. If anybody uses, for example, LinkedIn, there's AI built in there. And yeah. so 
I think we're going to continue to see those advances. I think in a lot of technology, there's art and science, though. And mm -hmm. so I hope that in the analytical side of of AI, people use that as a tool or as a 50% decider. And then the art, uh, the human art of, of taking that information in certain cases is going to be really important to still have. And so I feel we, as though we need creative people in, te in technology as well as people who are focused on, on AI and coding. Um, personalized medicine for me, I think, is a, is really interesting, and mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of advancement. And that is a mix of, of technology, biology, um, but I feel like we can make some great advancements with personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. Given a number of recent events, cyber cybersecurity, I think, is a very interesting field to be in. And, um, of course, we've had a lot of discussions since you and I last spoke about platforms um, and the role of the platform. Everyone's talking about platform in, in media. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to have to figure out the definition of a platform and content and yeah. figure out how to apply cybersecurity and AI to both of those. The Valley is a place you learn every day, and when you think you've learned enough, you learn some more. Right. Yeah. It's humbling, uh, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. And uh, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And there's a lot going on with IoT, Internet of Things now, yeah. applied again to personalized medicine devices that people can use to help manage everything from uh, blood sugar to mo monitoring blood pressure, et cetera. I think we're going to see continued advance, advances with IoT in a variety of areas. Personalized medicine is one that's also close to my heart, and I can mm -hmm. see quality of life improving as as these technologies come to become real in the commercial space. And, yes. You know, it's, uh, it's fascinating to watch. It's quality of life and also cost-effectiveness. Mm -hmm. If you look at the aging baby boomer, group that needs medical care uh, and just the overall population size, we need, we need to find cost-effective ways to provide effective medicine and, and health care. No, I uh, completely agree. And Transportation is another area that everybody's talking about, ranging from scooters to autonomous uh, cars driving. and yeah, autonomous driving. So we'll see where that goes. I, I'm always, I always recall, and I'll, I'll talk about a technology for a moment that is obsolete but the, if you know what a modem is back in the day modems <laughs> were going to disappear immediately when a new technology called ISDN came along and people forecasted that it would be 12 to 18 months well guess what it was 8 to 10 years later that that really happened and so certain technologies can take hold quickly but it's it is a migration people forget that migration of technologies doesn't happen overnight you know, and uh, and you're so it's so very true. I mean, there's a lot of focus right now on people saying set tops are going away and they're mm -hmm. virtual. But all of us have these gateways in our house still being sold by cable companies, and right. and that migration is going to take some time. Even right. though the technologies have become big enablers to, to cloud-based services, things are not happening overnight. Although I think we were talking about millennials, that they're they're used to a rate of change that's faster than we were. So we'll have to see if that, as this generation matures even more, whether the rate of change continues to excel. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you clearly, you know, um, we have kids that are millennials, and you know, we see their adoption rate of new 
features, services, technologies, all of that being at a lightning pace compared to ourselves. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there, it's easy for them to adopt t- technology very quickly and to get bored quickly. I think they've been raised on a smorgasbord of technology, if you will, one from column A, one from column B. Um, but I also think that many of them get to a place where they realize that technology isn't everything. And I think as they mature, they're still going to leverage technology, but they may be looking, there are some superfluous applications. If go to the app store and figure out, you know, look at the sales rate for the top apps. I think they'll, um, over a period of time, maybe hone in on the things that matter most that and, and be a little more focused. Switching topics, and I am coming to a close of this uh, this show, and I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. One was, uh, you know, every time I meet you, you're always reading. Mm. <laughs> And what is your uh, latest book and what insights do you have for us or books that you've been reading? I hate to admit that I was reading a mystery this weekend just to (laughs) let my mind go to mush. But also the one that I'm reading now, I think I had mentioned to you at one point called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And it goes along somewhat with what I've been talking about, authenticity. And um, Kim Scott is is very, very candid. But essentially what, um, what... her mantra is is that we should uh, just not be so nice and to speak up and tell the truth because a lot of times, especially for women, what we want to do is um, is make nice nice and have everybody be happy and figure out a way, getting quickly to a place of delivering tough feedback and helping people move forward with the truth um, increases performance incredibly. Mm. And so I think from a leadership point of view, if we can find, again, ways to tell the truth with, with the tough truth, sometimes with kindness, but to be direct earlier rather than waiting, for example, don't wait for someone's performance review to give them feedback. I, Mm. uh, talked to somebody I'm recruiting for a company right now and, was interviewing one of the people inside the company, um, and he was telling me some things about the company, and he said, by the way, I'm keeping these on a list for my performance review in December. And I I said to him, don't do that. You know, see if you can find a way earlier to, these are great ideas and great thoughts, and, you know, he was clearly frustrated not having moved ahead. So I think Kim Scott's notion of, in leadership, telling people, whether if something's not working, tell tell them it's not working and why it's not working and what needs to be done sooner than later. By the way, that's uh, I, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. I'm actually I, I think it's it'll be an interesting book because I do believe that that's such an important trait to have as a leader, mm-hmm. to be able to give good feedback and and uh, drive performance. But uh, both of us have have had access to prolific investors and venture capitalists. Um, most of my experiences have been that these folks do believe that they know it all. (laughs) So how would you apply uh, what you're reading currently to say, you know, human VCs, uh, they've got a team and they've got, they work with partners and all of that. uh, How would, uh, you know, some of these kind of insights apply to them or not? I think they're very applicable. And as an investor, I guess what is the mantra? Um, nose in, fingers out. Mm-hmm. So 
an investor comes in, are, are you talking about this more so during a funding stage or managing the company as or a board? As, or as VCs managing their funds. Managing All their funds. All of fund. the above, yeah. Yeah. I've seen VCs stick with companies that are either a product and not a company, mm-hmm. or there are too many companies in the same category, and, and their company is a grade B, C, or D company, and they're not going to be a leader, and they're not going to make a return, but they keep funding and hoping. So I think they, um, I'm a big believer in fail fast, and I think quickly you have to get to a point of understanding when you're an investor whether a company is one you really can build to be a big company, whether you should help it get ready to be sold or whether you should shut it down. Um, and those are, it sounds very black and white, but those are really the three options. The other thing is leadership inside a company, probably more relevant to what I'm doing today than being an investor. But it's painful for me, having been an operator and having been an investor, to walk into a company and see that the the leaders are not not frankly fit for what they're doing and I feel as though good investors have to be really tough and they have to look at a deal carefully and look at who the team is and understand up front and be up front when they're Mm -hmm. investing like I think you're great this is great technology I don't think you're going to take the company beyond 10 million so unless something changes you should expect that well you know are you down for looking for a new CEO in a year whatever it is Um, make Make those tough calls and mm-hmm. be direct about it and kind about it and help people be successful and make money. Do you see that aspect being well practiced in the world of VCs? What's been your experience? I would say it's 50 50. Mm-hmm. Um, my career grew immeasurably by those tough VCs who gave me feedback. Mm-hmm. And I remember a very difficult conversation with absolutely one of the best VCs in Silicon Valley who told me my slides were too wordy and I tried Mm -hmm. to argue with him and at one point he just said you can argue with me all day long I'm just telling you if you take those things out on a meeting you're not going to get funded we have the attention span of a gnat and nobody's going to hear you you know and that was a slap in the face but boy was it a good one um so uh I would say 50 percent of VCs are not honest and they don't And frankly, some of them haven't been operators. And so they Mm -hmm. look at everything in a very theoretical, from a theoretical perspective. Mm -hmm. And they don't know that when you decide to downsize, you can't do that from a board meeting on Wednesday and have it done by the following Monday. You have to take some planning. And, you know, um, I would counsel somebody going out to look for funding to try to find VCs who have operational backgrounds. And I would counsel VCs to constantly look at their portfolios and prune. Um, And by pruning, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to cut them, but you need to look at them with a really realistic eye about what's happening in the marketplace and also what caliber or whether the team people are scaling as the company is scaling or whether they can scale. Again, another very... uh Great set of insights, and uh, I've had some interesting experiences too in the world of investing in VCs, and so have you. But I, I, uh, I hope on a future um, show we will dedicate some time to this aspect of governance and leadership. I have a series of uh, I have guests, including yourself, and in, in future shows that I hope to very myopically focus on that 
aspect which all of us desperately need. Yes. But as we come to a close of the show, first of all, and I, I must have to thank you uh, for again joining us on the show. And but my last question to you is, uh, you know, all of us eventually face the sunset in our personal lives, and you know you've had an incredible career. But what would you want people to remember you by? Hmm. If I've been able in any way to help somebody's career mm-hmm. grow, and if I've developed them, that would be my greatest gift. There, there's no amount of money that anyone can earn that would be that great a gift. If I, um, The next generation has so much promise, and mm-hmm. even today my greatest pleasure is wa- is watching people grow so um i hope that somebody will remember even if it was a mistake that i made but they learned from my mistake that somehow they grew that's how i want to be remembered thank you and uh, that's uh, one of those things that is so personal and i can see having known you for a while you uh, you really try to instill confidence in people around you in the way you interact and listen to people. Thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you again on the show. Well, thank you, Sudhir. You bring out the best in people when you interview them. It's really been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Final thoughts from your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Sudhir and Zeichner, another person who has cracked the code. Perhaps the thing that stood out to me, maybe not the most important thing that she said, but she related a story about how she got her employees, the people who she was leading, to really relate and better communicate with her when they just went out and laughed and told jokes and maybe had a drink. Anne is, uh, is another one of those uh, incredible leaders that I've had the privilege of, of getting to know carried many different roles in her career early on. And again, this was, uh, if you think back to the times where women were not really um, welcome in certain roles, uh, here was Anne, got bored uh, doing uh, some journalistic work for a tech magazine, decides she's going to go and be a salesperson as a woman in the early 80s, selling modems and, you know, (laughs) yeah. So I I think, you know, the learnings against some common themes that we picked up from Anne are being authentic. One thing I'll have to say, as a, a lifelong journalist who's dabbled with some technology, is she did realize that she would make a lot more money in technology sales and management than she would writing anything. She's been extremely successful as a result. Yes. As you know, she <laughs> ran her own companies, was a venture capitalist. Uh, she's just doing what she enjoys most now. But one of these common themes of early on getting focused in life and starting to think about mentors and starting to to set goals and build against your convictions and and drive against them pretty hard. She, she was she was right there. It occurs to me that being a woman in the 80s in technology sales sounds like it would be a big disadvantage, except for the fact that there was no precedent, and she got to create that, yep. the way to do it, the approach that the men wouldn't even think of, didn't have to think of, because, of course, the president was set. How do they do sales? Was set. But she invented what she did. 
couldn't have said it better, and I think she embodies uh, leadership from her heart. You know, that uh, the insights she shared with us are very, very, while they have some common themes, they are also very unique in the sense that you really want to listen and give people the attention where they feel like they're being heard. And that's very important, I think. And that's an important element of respecting another human being that comes out very clear and ends uh, on the show uh, within. Another part of cracking the code, a very important lesson. 